ladies and gentlemen, All-American Tommy James. The music of Tommy James is played continuously every day in every country in the world and has been for over a generation. His songs have become so ingrained in modern culture, it's difficult to go for more than a couple of days without hearing one of them on the radio, on the TV, in films, or one of the 300-plus cover versions of his songs by other artists. He has sold to date over 100 million records and has been awarded 23 gold singles and nine gold and platinum albums. And it's my pleasure to welcome Tommy James, and thank you so much, Tommy, for giving us this time. Well, thank you. <laughs> nice to talk with you, Vince. Well, you know, it's it's so um, weird, really. For years on end, you play a single, uh, I'm referring in particular to Moni Moni. Uh-huh. And, you know, we grew up, of course, with loving that song. But then when I got the chance to start looking at more of your work, uh, you realise just how many songs you've written and what a great career you've had. Well, thank you so much. It's really nice of you to say. I appreciate that. It's my pleasure. And, of course, um, I'm going to ask you to go right back to the very, very beginnings because I see um, you were born in 1947 and at the age of 12 you had your own band that's true. Well, you know, I'm surprised somebody didn't send me to my room, actually, but uh, that's that's true. We started uh, the group that became the Shandells uh, in 1959. I was 12 years old, and we, we formed it to do the junior high school, the seventh grade variety show in, uh, in junior high. And... Um, we, uh, you know, put this little group together, and uh, I think we played Lonesome Town by Rick Nelson, mm. actually. And we got such a great response from uh, our class that uh, we kept the group together, and we started doing uh, sock hops and VFW halls and, uh, you know, American Legion and YMCAs and things like that, and dances, and sort of collected a little, uh, a little fan base back in my hometown of Niles, Michigan. And uh, uh, I'll try to give you the shortest version I can here. I got a job after school in high school as uh, uh, a clerk in a record shop and uh, in my hometown and got to sort of promote my band out of the record store. So um, we actually had two little regional label deals uh, in southern Michigan before I was out of high school. But the second one was uh, a little label called Snap Records, and it was owned by a local DJ in town. And he asked me if we'd sign with his label, and we said yes. And uh, one of the four tracks that we did for him was a song called Hanky Panky. Can I just quickly play a little tiny bit of this? Sure. Here we go. My baby does a hanky panky. Yeah, my baby does a hanky panky. Now, it's it's rather strange, you know, because when I first heard that song, I remember buying it, uh, I think it was a Neil Diamond version. Yes, well, Neil Diamond ended up covering the tune, that's true. Um, 
Well, you know, we basically did this, uh, did Hanky Panky and released it. This is in 1964, the year before I graduated from high school. And we released it in Michigan, and it, it uh, was number one in about four square blocks, and then died. <laughs> and then, uh, so I graduated from high school the next year and took my band on the road and um, sort of forgot about the record. And I came home sort of out of work and depressed in early 66 and got a call from um, a disc jockey and a distributor in Pittsburgh that Hanky Panky, that I had pretty much forgotten about, uh, had been bootlegged in Pittsburgh and sold 80,000 copies, and we were sitting at number one. Mm. That's one of those once-in-a-lifetime stories that, uh, you know, it's like winning the lottery, and I just <laughs> it just blew me away. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't put the original group back together, so I went by myself and grabbed the first bar band we could find, and um, they became the Shondells. And two weeks later, we took the record to New York and uh, ended up selling the master to Roulette Records in Manhattan. And that began my career. Now, I see also that you were one of the first acts to experiment uh, with music videos. That's true. Um, actually, um, um, later on, about three years into the career, we starting with actually Moni Moni. Um, we figured that a, a, it made all the sense in the world to do a film of your hit record. So uh, we we did uh, uh, a couple of videos of Moni Moni and one of the others, and uh, we couldn't get it played anywhere. TV people in the U.S. just would not play. They didn't want to be told what to do by rock and roll people. So mm. we had a, the only place we could get it played was in European movie theaters. <laughs> this is a true story. Uh, in between, you know, double features in the movie theaters. And so uh, it was me and Daffy Duck for a long time. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, this is the track that I want to ask you about next. Now, I've got to really, really get into this track, and yet it's not one that we really uh, recognised in the UK market. I know I live in Spain now, but, you know, when I was DJing, I don't think I really got into that song. Was it released in the UK? It, it, let me just tell you what happened. When we, when we uh, uh, recorded Moni Moni, the song actually was as big in the UK as it was in Britain. And... Um, uh, the the what happened was we were approached at that we were supposed to come over and do top of the pops right and we were going to do a, a tour of England and everything was all set up and at the last minute we got a call from Hubert Humphrey the vice president in the United States who was running for president uh, and asked us if he we would tour with him this is the first time a politician and a rock act ever teamed up so we. Um, we felt it was our duty to do this, and so we did it. We did the entire campaign with him, and um, as a result, we didn't go to in England, and they got very upset with us. Uh, okay. And the BBC basically banned our records for about four years, 
and would not play any Tommy James and the Chantels. They threatened to, and they did it. And that's why Crimson and Clover, which was our biggest selling single of all time, we did almost six million singles uh, of Crimson and Clover, and the album it was our biggest selling record. Uh, really didn't get heard that much in England. Well, that's a shame because, as I say, it's a song that um, I've really started to get into in the last couple of days, and uh, I will obviously be playing it because, uh, you know, for, for a DJ, when you get a song that you like, you want sure. to share it, you know. Well, listen, I, I, you know, it's really too bad because a whole bunch of our records uh, didn't get played in Britain uh, as a result of that, but I still feel it was the right thing to do. Okay, I've got another song which has appeared on the DVD uh, and the CD uh, that you've sent, or you know, your your management have sent me. Sure. I'm, I'm thrilled with with what's been sent, by the way. But this is the song, and then I'll tell you why I like it so much. Talking about my baby, a little Latin baby, but she's a She couldn't do She's my little Latin baby Little Latin Lupe Well if you want to do it right that's absolutely wonderful and it's a song that all the groups around the the cavern and uh, you, you know the places where in my formative years i used to sure. go and watch the, the beatles and people like that uh, absolutely fabulous i love that song well, and thank you that's little latin loopy lou that was uh, a cover version it was actually uh two songs put together it's called loopy and joe uh, we took two songs that were big from the, uh, the early 60s, Little Latin Loopy Lou and a song called Killer Joe, and uh, put them together sort of in an old, one of those old Mitch Ryder type formulas where he would glue two songs together. And uh, we got a great response to that here in the U.S. That's from our last album that was released last year in the United States called Hold the Fire. And we actually had three top five adult contemporary records uh, last year with that. It was the first time on the charts in about uh, 20 years for us, and it was great. Um, well, it just happened to be one of my all-time fa- I couldn't believe it when I saw it on that. Well, thank you. I'm glad you mm. like it. Oh, absolutely wonderful. I really, really, I, I love that song. It's just one of these things, you get memories uh, with music, and uh, that was a very, very strong memory for well, me. Thanks a lot. Now, um, am I al- allowed to ask you a little bit about Morris Levy? Is that okay? You're allowed to ask me anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Now, obviously, there's always things lurking behind stories that we don't always yeah. know. Can, can, Especially with Morris Levy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Well, Morris Levy is was the uh, president of Roulette Records, the uh, label that we signed with, and... Um, uh, he was a very notorious character. I guess you could it's very easily say he was mobbed up, if you get my drift. Yes. Uh, he was uh, put in business, actually, by the Genovese crime family back in uh, the late 50s in the United States. Uh, and Roulette Records was really sort of a front for the mob. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they had, but then all of a sudden they started having hits, which was sort of unexpected. And so Morris Levy, I didn't know this at the time, of course, but Morris Levy and the, uh, the people that 
he assembled to make up roulette records were you know part record company and part wise guys you know it was uh uh and and so we signed with this label and uh i've often said i don't know why the good lord decided to bless me through these people but he did <laughs> and uh th- these were the people that we uh you know sold a hundred million records with mm. and it was really amazing and it's uh fascinating story and we're doing a movie about it actually i was going to come to that so uh, there's a book and a movie isn't there yes yes indeed and uh uh you know what was so i I guess you could say it's sort of the ultimate odd couple story because uh uh here we were from the midwest uh you know kids from the midwest and suddenly put together with these uh, street thugs and um uh uh, you know, and had to, and and made hit hit records, and I so I don't know what what you say about that. It was really a very bizarre situation, but uh, um, and of course, getting paid from them was a real challenge, and uh, all that stuff. So we we tell all about it in the, and it's really part of our our history that most of the fans don't know. Yes, yes. Um, let me ask you about the um, the way that you've moved to the movie scores as well, because that's a, an aspect that I don't think many British people will be totally familiar with. Um, and you've got a, a tremendous track record about this, haven't you? Well, you know, we've been very fortunate because um, uh, really starting in the 80s, um, our music began to be used um, constantly in movies. And, uh, you know, it was sort of a novelty at first, and then they started using it more and more, and we've, uh, uh, we've, we've had something like over 300 cover versions done of our stuff, and also uh, between three and 400 films of all different kinds um, uh, using the, the, the music, of, uh, you know, in the movies. And I'm, so I'm very flattered by this, and I'm really very honored. Uh, we just... Uh, 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 some of the v- versions are really good. Like REM did such a fantastic version of Dragon the Line and the Austin Powers movie. And uh, uh, this last year, we've had three movies. We had uh, Dragon the Line and We Are Marshall. We had the Crystal Blue Persuasion in a movie called Zodiac about the Zodiac murders out in uh, San Francisco in the 60s. And uh, a new movie called The Nanny Diaries, which is coming out in the United States, uh, used Crystal Blue this year as well last year 07 mm. and so uh, you know we're really thrilled about that we could just play a little bit of that track as well here we go all american tommy james <laughs> you see this is where we came in of course with dragging the line It's got a lovely mood feel to this, hasn't it? Well, thank you. Now, when I was uh, speaking with uh, your secretary, who's absolutely wonderful, by the way, she's Thank been you. really, really good. Um, she was. Uh, she said to me, "Ask Tommy about uh, your vision for the future." 
Well, you know, we, we're doing, uh, I'm writing a, uh, uh, an article, a monthly article in Cashbox magazine. By the way, Cashbox has just come back, the big trade paper that used to give Billboard a lot of competition. Uh, and then suddenly then it, they went away in the 90s, and now they've been uh, purchased by a new owner, and they're, they're making a big comeback. So they're uh, going to be a major trade paper in the United States along with Billboard, and we're writing a monthly column. In, uh, and you know, and so I'm able to really sort of express uh, my feelings about the record business, which has made me pretty sad over the years, actually, with in the last few years with sort of the collapse of the industry. But um, I really believe that um, we are seeing, uh, you know, we're we're sort of in between two technologies right now. We're sort of in a no man's land. The industry, the infrastructure of the industry, has pretty much collapsed over the last five or six years and um, uh, what's happening is it's sort of being reborn and um, uh, so my my uh, my my basic uh, motto right now is for people who are in the record business not to lose heart that things are we're, we're morphing from one technology into another and uh, there's some really exciting things coming up ahead and um, Along with the, the the you know the digital aspect of it and downloading and and all of the rest, we're seeing we're going to see some wonderful new uh, genres of music. Uh, uh, you know, in one way, uh, the rock and roll industry has the disc industry has collapsed, but the music business is fine. Yes, you know, and there's you got to make a distinction between the two because the record companies have been in the disc business for so long that you you, you tend to think uh, that the end of the disc business is the end of the music business. Well, they're two very different things. Mm. And so we are literally seeing the rising of the new industry. And it's taken a little while because all of the fluctuations have to take place and all of the, you know, but we're going to see wonderful new things with, uh, I think the radio business is going to sort of move to television. Yes, I think we're going to have television, uh, ra- whatever we call radio on TV. I think we're going to have everything from trade papers to, um, you know, rock and roll is going to make the move to TV. And I don't just mean with MTV that basically became, you know, wet T-shirt contest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really talking about uh, the music business itself making the move to high def TV, which is going to be coming in over the next couple of years, and we're going to see wonderful new things happen. So I'm very optimistic. And let me ask you about this uh, long-awaited Christmas album because it's uh, you're getting together with the original Shondells, aren't you? Yes, indeed. Uh, you really did your homework. Thank <laughs> you. That's that's true. We uh, uh, the Shondells and I haven't hadn't made music, uh, you know, in over thirty years together. I've been having a solo career, and uh, so. I, uh, we're doing a Christmas album called I Love Christmas, and we've signed with Sony Records, and uh, they're going to be releasing it in October. Uh, as, by the way, they, they released the DVD and the, um, and the CD of our Bitter End show mm-hmm. um, in the United States. The package you have, I believe, is the Unidisc package from Canada. Well, look at this. And Would you believe this? I've actually got that lovely new track. Good. Well, I'll tell you about it when you after you've heard it. <laughs> I'll play a little tiny bit of it. Here we go. Sure.
Well, I have a feeling we'll be playing that one over Christmas. Well, great. It's funny, it's funny playing Christmas music in April, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Hard to get in the Christmas spirit, but that's okay. Well, you know, what's so amazing is we. this is our first Christmas album, and we've had people ask us to do it for several years, and we had such great luck with I Love Christmas on American radio. And so uh, we. it took us a year to put this album together, but we've finally done it. It's going to be coming out on Sony in October. And the last song on the album I wrote with Mike Vale, the bass player with the original Shondells. And it came out so great that we got the the three surviving members of the Shondells back together from Pittsburgh and brought them up to New York and recorded a song called It's Christmas Again. And we had such a great response this last year. We just MP3'd it to radio stations around the country. And we had such a great response to it that we decided we're going to be actually making a new album together. So this is going to be the first album I've done with the original Shondells in over 35 years. Ah, fabulous. So it's going to be amazing. Okay, well, look, um, as long as it's okay with you, what I'd like to do now, I'm going to um, make a podcast of what we've been talking about sure um then i put together a page which of course is a tribute to your work and i'll link that up to your website well fine and um obviously tommy i've got to say thank you very very much indeed for all the music that uh, we've enjoyed the big one of course up and down the length and breadth of britain and i'm sure spain as well um moni moni what a great song thank you so much and thank you very much indeed for your time tommy great talking with you vince thank you so much bye-bye bye-bye So a big thank you to Tommy James and the Shondells. And what a great memory. Moni Moni. <laughs>